0: Hi, I'm Malk Kent. And I'm Jacob Pusey. And you're listening to the Art and Science of Running podcast. If you climb the
1: new sea
2: Of running podcasts, and we're here in Calgary at the Versa Movement Collective, uh, the clinic where Malk works. Um, and we're here with a special guest, Alex Luchenka, correct, visiting us from New Hampshire. And uh, so, Alex is here um, for a couple biomechanic conferences, correct? Yep. Uh, do you
3: want to tell us a little bit about those conferences? Mm. Sure. What you're doing here? So the first conference is in uh, was about an hour from here in Canadascas. Uh, hopefully, I'm saying that yeah. place correctly. <laughs> uh, but it was a, a footwear biomechanics, so specifically related to footwear and like kind of human movement of footwear related. Um, so kind of every big shoe dogs in the industry, from Nike to Adidas, Saucony, and so forth, kind of present their sort of work, as well as their maybe partnered in academic institutions. But it's very heavy in their running. Road running realm, but there's also some other things like occupational and safety and soccer and cleated footwear as well So they do a little bit of everything but predominantly kind of where the big market is they do the running stuff Um, and now uh, So that's ending today Um, And what's today is Tuesday and uh, for the next coming week or so for about five days There's the ISB uh, which is the International Society of Biomechanics conference that's happening over just in in the heart of Calgary So forth at the TELUS Convention Center, and that's everything from uh, the whole entire body biomechanics so like show uh, ergonomics shoulder upper body legs everything you can think of so it gets oddly specific and you kind of have like little chapters in there that yeah could go into any subset of a field that you're interested in. Nice.
2: So uh, clearly uh, biomechanics are, are <laughs> an interest of yours and, and Mal's and, and mine um, and and the way that we all connected uh, was Malk and I worked together a bit. Um, Malk did uh, some gait analysis on me, um, say May, early May. May and yeah, May, early May, sorry. and uh, mm-hmm. had I, I used some Runscribe sensors. Uh, that Malk uh, was part of the development of those uh, wearable uh, pods, and, uh, and so I wore those. And he identified, identified a few things and then I, I raced in those and uh, he, he actually helped me get to the starting line healthy using those. <laughs> uh, he, he identified some things that I wasn't telling anyone because I had a race coming up and I just didn't want to complain, but he helped me find a solution. Um, Recommended that I seek professional help uh, <laughs> to loosen some <laughs> things up um, in the body. In the, body. in the body. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, uh, I was already seeking professional help for other things, but uh, <laughs> no. uh, so so yeah, I was having some issues um, in my left hip and hamstring and things, and uh, but again, didn't tell anyone, didn't have time to deal with it, so I was just gonna grind through it. But I was on a, a crash course to destruction and uh, and out identified that through some of his analyses and uh and helped me get help so that i could compete at the end of may at the at the canadian 50k championships and so that was shared uh on the Runscribe blog and i, I believe that's how we connected perhaps i mean I, yes. we, we have a couple different uh different ways of uh, of connection a couple different connections um so you work for vanity fair uh for vf corp mm-hmm. um, and uh and you're, can you tell us your title and, and sure. kind of what you do?
3: How so it's, it's, yeah. so um, uh, VF, uh, I think Vanity Fair, just to be uh, <laughs> yeah. appropriate, they sold off the license that, to that name a while back ago. So oh, they're okay. just VF, I just know. Just okay. It's total, so totally it's not understand. the magazine? It's no, not yeah. the magazine anymore, okay. now. Okay. Um, but yes, uh, they are uh, kind of the umbrella corporation that owns a lot of brands. Okay. And now Ultra is kind of the most recent acquisition they had, I think, what, early last year? Mm-hmm. Um, and so About um, this time last year, actually, yeah. I think. Yeah. Correct, yeah, yeah, um, and um, I work as part of a small innovation team within that company that supports all of the brands that they own. So there are two teams, basically, one that services uh, uh, future uh, footwear developments and one that does the same thing for apparel. Okay. So I work as kind of the, uh, my title is I'm a senior applied innovation researcher. Basically what that means is I do the in-house physiology and biomechanics stuff as it relates to footwear product, but we also help service the apparel world as well because biomechanics isn't just footwear related. So my expertise kind of breaches the scope of anything from thermoregulation to uh, biomechanics to physiology across footwear and apparel. But I, my passion personally is footwear. Yeah.
2: Great. And and so you've worked with, with other athletes mm-hmm. and, um, under the VF umbrella.
3: So what are some of the other footwear brands that VF owns, just so we're familiar with Sure. Yeah. That, yeah. So the other, so our team is set to support kind of the three. their three biggest revenue drivers, which are uh, the brands of Timberland, North Face, and Vans. So Vans skateboarding, North Face. Uh, I guess you could think of trail running. Um, and as far in terms of athletes, we've worked with uh, all of the above. So kind of more workwear industry-related stuff for Timberland. So if you think of like um, the field of ergonomics or like occupational and safety stuff, that's where stuff that has been done for Timberland. For skateboarding for vans, which is, I would say, a huge polarity t- type of work that you do and the people that you work with, but they are incredible athletes, um, and I definitely can't even step on a skateboard, so that was <laughs> a new thing for me. Um, and then more so with the trail running space and climbing as well when it comes to the North Face. So um, North Face, I think, is very well known for having some of the most pinnacle athletes in each of the respective sport categories, and we've had, it's an amazing privilege to be able to work with them. So, uh,
2: you specifically reached out to to me to to discuss potentially using some RunScribe um, sensors in training um, to inform perhaps some of the development decisions that you make um, at VF and um, potentially with Ultra. Is that correct? So,
3: what's that supposed to look like? How how will that work, or how do you envision that working? Sure. Yeah. So, this is kind of where our team is a little bit interesting, is that uh, traditional biomechanics labs and such, they're always, you know, indoors, four walls, closed environments, expensive force blades, motion capture cameras, but uh, there's only so much you can do when running on a treadmill. And trail running, in this case, which is where ultra is pretty big in, as well as the road, but trail running in the past is what we've done with the Northeast quite extensively. Uh, you quickly learn that the, the kind of movement that they exhibit running on the trail Um, however technical or non-technical the trail may be is totally different than what you can measure on on a treadmill. So we were essentially forced uh, immediately to start doing field-based testing. And the good part is wearable technology, um, however you are familiar with that space, is is up to a point where it's allowing us to do that. RunScribe in this case being the prime example of that. So the the small little pod uh, inertial measurement unit and so forth that sits on your shoe now has the power to do And measure the 3D movement, I guess 4D in this case being over time, um, of of an individual with incredible accuracy and how much and what type of information you could pull out of that is just unlimited. So the goal is to be able to work with you, and there's different footwear models that any brand has, but they exhibit a different response in how you are going to inherently move, whether they are strapped down to your foot nice and tight and very low to the ground so you can do the technical stuff or maybe like a maximalist shoe. You could think of the Ultra Duo or, you know, compare some Hoka models or whichever. So the goal is to be able to see what sort of differences your body expresses when you're wearing those polarizing footwear products and how can we make them better. And the reality is is that you really can't make this stuff better until we have your input with the data that's associated with it. Um, And that's kind of essentially the holy grail of it.
2: That's great. In the interim, I'm I'm actually interested um, in the data and and both of your <laughs> respective opinions uh, about uh, because you will both have access to my Runscribe data uh, um, is the goal. And uh, if there is something, is if there's a a particular model of shoes or even a particular route that um, that I run <laughs> on a regular basis that seems to be showing some irregularities that could Lead to injury. Um, I I'd like to preempt that, and so <laughs> I'm I'm looking forward to knowing you know if, if there are certain shoes even even under my sponsors you know if there are particular models that don't necessarily align all that well with my particular mechanics um, mm-hmm. to maybe not uh, include them in my in my rotation, and then if there's one or two models that potentially helps me uh, <laughs> and and aligns well with my mechanics, then I gravitate toward that one and so hopefully we can work together i i, I think most runners don't like being injured I mean, most <laughs> yeah, most of us prefer yeah. to be able to run on a daily basis and even like i was in april and may just grind yeah. through even some some niggles that become uh, more acute uh injuries uh, so i'd like to try and avoid that and i'm I'm hopeful that we'll be able to find a solution, and if, if there isn't a solution right now, that we'll be able to create a solution. Yeah,
0: absolutely. That would be would be cool. Cool, but yeah, that's an interesting point, because we were talking before like we started this podcast, um, just myself, Alex, about um, sort of parallel kind of uh, work and parallel kind of insights, really, um, and between using the wearable technology for um, injury prevention, which is kind of my side, versus for, uh, for footwear development. And it's it's pretty pretty cool that we can use like one technology that we can cross that the platform together and, and see and um in your example it's both things simultaneously you can help developers shoot and you can try and potentially stay injury free yeah um and um, yeah I guess um uh, we, should, we should probably explain a little bit as well about um a little bit of background of Runscribe as well and um, sure uh so at the moment we um. I'm speaking on mostly on behalf of Tim who's like the guy and the founder but he uh, won't mind um, yeah we've we worked um, with a, all the different like, kind of shoe companies that are out there but um, we're really interested now in sort of in working with um, VF particularly and because of this exact reason of like getting outside onto trails and we we're talking about it before like when you look at trail running if we just kind of spin off on that for a second it's incredibly complicated and um, you can have a if you don't have enough Metrics to work with enough parameters, you can't begin to understand what is a really complicated system, and that complicated system is interacting with the environment all the time, every second. So, um, so the cool thing about what y- you're doing with, uh, with VF, with North Face and outro is really pushing a uh, pushing the technology to the limit <laughs> of what you can sort of um, what you can un- what you can figure out and understand. And um, as I'm sure, like people are discussing here this week in this big international biomechanics conference, it's you know, Misdiagnosis is really, really easily, and and I can spin off on this for hours. And it's the problem that we that we've had with Runscribe and other technologies I've worked with have is, is, how, yeah, is how to have like kind of valid interpretation of diagnosis from from wearable tech. And I think what we've done with Runscribe is really is create as many parameters as possible, and not try and interpret for the end user, but say, look, here's all the parameters. You go figure this out, right? Uh, but we'll give you enough data to have an insight. Um, and I think like in, in our consumer version, we have like about 11 or 12 different parameters, but when they're the kind of like their sort of top secret version <laughs> that we That's use here, okay. there's like about 35 or 40 parameters. And even then with like 35, 40 parameters, it's hard to profile exactly what has happened in that run. You, you definitely have insights. And as we were talking before and I was sort of mentioning, you, you almost have to kind of cluster parameters together to see co-trends like together to start figuring stuff out. And certainly, that's where kind of wearable tech I've seen anyway has had a bad rep in the past. Like, is that the tech has been a little bit too simplistic, and people have said, "Oh, well, you know, you know, I can see contact time, and if contact time tells me this, I'm I'm getting injured or something," you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like, even if you had three or four parameters, that's still not enough, really. Like, yeah, bodies a super complicated, set of systems, and um, yeah, when you put it on a trail environment it, with ups and downs and uh, difficult ground underfoot, it's like. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. really complex. Yeah,
2: uh, Alex was out in Canmore the other day. Um, he met and got me all set up with with Runscribe and and we went out on my my typical eight or ten k loop uh, that I do four or five times a week uh, with the dog. Um, and uh, <laughs> and that uh, that's just my daily loop. But when it when I compare that to to the the frontage road that I that I used to run during the winter when I was training for a road race specifically um, and trying to stay off <laughs> the ice and things. Um, in that same amount of time, I, I can cover significant more distance, but I mean, just, just in that short little run, um, I mean, there, there were some scrambling sections where <laughs> using our hands, uh, jumping over logs, um, crawling over logs, uh, Trying to call the dog back from squirrels and other wildlife, um, and and so yeah, trail running is a very different um, different experience for the for the athlete, and so uh, the footwear demands are different. Um, but I think uh, the wear and tear on the athlete's body is also different. And so uh, when when Mal and I started working together, that was a big um, I don't know for for me that was that was a reason to. To begin using wearable technology. I'm, I'm probably the last to accept advancements in technology. Like I'm, I'm a Luddite uh, when it comes to technology in part because like what you described it's like there are plenty of great ideas out there but but actually how much is it going to improve my life um, and in fact you know when you contacted me initially it was like do I want to add one more layer or one more thing to do to my already busy schedule but I view this as an investment that will ultimately save me time and heartache (laughs) and frustration if I can avoid getting injured and potentially make um, better decisions about product and and that kind of thing. So, um, I I really appreciate that that RunScribe allows anyone who uses it to do it in an authentic environment. Again, whether that is the road or the trail. whatever it is they're doing. So.
0: One of the interesting things that like, we were kind of riffing off on before, and we, I didn't realize this, we just connected the dots just before you came in, and um, was that we had another connection, which was last year in Chicago Marathon. And so <laughs> our mutual friend, Eric, ran Chicago Marathon, of course. Yeah. And um, I think I think Eric won't mind me saying that he had a target around 2.30. like, mm-hmm. And um, and so, as I do, like I just throw run scribes <laughs> and random people doing interesting marathons, right? <laughs> and then I remember, Eric did say something to me, being a guy wearing ultras and an ultra shirt and everything else, he wore a white outfit that was a bit dubious about to be honest, it was quite risque and um, I remember him saying something after about oh, he met somebody at the start and then we just connected the dots because it was actually you, <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> because Alex just showed me his, his data trends and his time from Chicago and I thought, hang on a second. You must have been
3: running really close to Eric. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> and you had a split set of Run Scribes as well on that day? Yep, I yep. did. Yeah, so I did a little bit of a, I mean, every time we, I, I run personally, as, as, as you already know, running yeah. with you and stuff, but uh, just either doing all the world majors, just road running in general. So I kind of use myself as a guinea pig for a lot of that early level research work, just so I don't have to make mistakes when we actually have the time to work with athletes. And I saw Eric at the at the race, and I was doing a study comparing... Uh, I guess the Altra Escalante and the Nike 4% shoe just over Chicago and the New York City Marathon. And um, I don't usually see anybody else with the pods unless we've given those pods to people. <laughs> so it's like, it's a great device, but it's not uh, from a consumer understanding perspective. I think it's still a little bit far reaching. Um, and I saw this individual wearing it, and I, was, and I had to ask, it's like, who are, uh, who, why are you wearing those? And he's told me, it's like, oh, some researcher in Canada told me to wear these. And I was like, okay, that's great, that's awesome. So no, it, it's, it's nice to connect the dots. It's a small world that's that's cool. that plays in that space. Eric is the guy that I actually told you about on, on our, our run.
2: Um, so just to talk about Eric a bit, um, in part because he's, he's uh, one of our business partners and colleagues, uh, he's a coach for Peak Run Performance. Um, but I actually started coaching Eric in 2014 I believe he was one of the first online athletes that I ever worked with uh, that I was assigned to work with uh, when I was working for Macmillan running um, so I was living in Flagstaff he was living in Calgary I think they assigned him to me as they did most Spanish speakers because I speak Spanish and so <laughs> he was one of the first athletes that signed up that spoke Spanish when I was working for him so Eric and I connected again as uh, is often the case I We met, we spoke, we corresponded, but I never expect to actually meet the people in person because it's all done remotely. Uh, It was odd to me that someone from Mexico City would be living in Canada when you could live in a warm place versus a cold place. It didn't make sense, and he talked about how challenging it was to train here. And then less than a year later, uh, I was up here for a race, and uh we connected i i didn't even know my geography i was like are you kind of in this same general <laughs> area and <laughs> he showed up we hung out um a month later i moved up here uh, and started a family and, and things and so eric and i are now training partners and um, and now business partners and things like that. So that is a, a quite a small world. That
0: uh, it is. It is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think uh, Eric reminded is saying that Alex did actually uh, pass him later on in the marathon. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to look at the data <laughs> and figure we, out why. Yeah, That's yeah, exactly. You know, it was really yeah. interesting. Yeah, because he, he showed me one curve of um, you know your step rate mm-hmm. and. Um, I was looking at thinking, yeah, Eric didn't do that. <laughs> we
2: probably shouldn't ask you which model you were wearing and which ones he was wearing. Okay. Were you both wearing the same ones?
3: Or? Uh, I was wearing the Escalante Racer. Okay. Actually, as exactly what you're not supposed to do, I literally picked it up at the expo the day before. Because yeah. I was like, you know, whatever. It makes it much more fun to just like test myself. Yeah. Um, I train in the trainer okay. all the time, yeah. but. The racer is a little bit more responsive, mm-hmm. so they, but it's a little bit firmer as mm-hmm. well. So that's kind of the difference that I wasn't used to for sure. Yeah, it is firmer. That's for sure.
0: I'm kind of interested. Um, you know, like I've, I've um, had some sort of crossing paths with obviously um, doing stuff with Nike and then out in Kenya with the Nike guys there, and and you've done uh, as I'm sure other people in other companies have done. You've done a whole bunch of comparison testing, and um, and you mentioned before, you know, some some testing versus the four percent from a personal perspective not a not a biomechanics i was at cim last um, december okay. and um and i watched at the halfway i watched the everybody up to 3 hours coming through and 46% i calculate 46% wore the same orange four <laughs> percent shoe like from your perspective as someone working in the industry like what do you make of the of the the huge uptake and the
3: huge like wave of popularity around one model shoe <laughs> like I mean, I, I, from a consumer standpoint, I think they did a great job. Like, if you were to put, if you were to tell me that I needed to run a PR or I was trained really hard to hit the trial standard or something of the sort, I would unequivocally pick that shoe no matter what. And majority of the reasons what most people will agree to, from, at least from a technical perspective, perspective, is they've innovated around a new phone. It's called PVAX, as opposed to an e, EVA or PU, which is what you traditionally hear. So a couple of years ago, was maybe back in like 2014 or so, Adidas was the one that came out with something similar, but it was those TPU pellets, so what you know now as Boost. Boost yeah. um, so this is basically the next level uh, of technology, but the thing is is that they kind of went one step further and created an entire system around it, which is great. So that the, in the forefoot aspect and how they utilize the carbon plate, um, and yeah, they just augment foot function a little bit, but it's enough to create that sensation that you're kind of like falling forward, and it gives you that sense of propulsion. But the reality is the material is just far more superior. It's much more compliant and resilient, is what people call it in in layman's terms. That just means that it's very cushioned and it has very good energy return, as opposed as in comparison to anything else that's currently in the market. And that's really what the softer thing that you run on usually it's very damping kind of sensation. In this case, it gives you both, and so it reduces that. Uh, muscular fatigue the amount of most of our energy costs really goes into that landing and how much work we have to do with our bodies to absorb all that impact and that's really where all the energy savings come from is that you don't have to do as much work absorbing all of that shock and and they excel at it and I will pick that shoe at this point every single time that I race so irrelevant what brands we work for you have to perform and uh, how do you see like how do you see that affecting I mean it's already started to affect
0: the foot, the running shoe industry, mm. um, Hoka, as um, one example, have jumped on the same concept essentially, like to some degree. Correct. And um, just created a model sh- as well, right.
3: and, and uh, one of their athletes, Jared Ward. Did some research on it as well. So yeah, right. go ahead. yeah. New did Balance has their fifty-two Project fifty-two eighty out, which is much more of a shorter one. But uh, arguably their concept is slightly different. But yeah. in a similar, light, my guess is that they were probably working concurrently on a similar process as opposed to because um, theirs came out pretty much at a similar time frame. But yeah, yeah, every, everyone is kind of on the whole in informing the like use of the carbon plate kind of aspect.
0: Of yeah. Things, so yeah. So you see, like in the near future you either get left behind or you jump on this kind of thing, like
3: for companies? In a way, um, it, the, the problem is is that where the benefit of the carbon plate is is very minimal. If I were to put a number to it, foam versus plate from the 4% shoe, I have to look at the numbers exactly to break it down into percentages, but you're looking at like 5 to 10% carbon plate benefit versus 90% foam improvement sort of thing. That's where the economy really comes from. So yeah. if a company like Saucony or anybody else or Hoka, if they use an inferior foam, um, as opposed to with is, they won't have the same magical benefit and feeling that the Nike 4% really offers, at least from my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I
0: wonder, uh, switching gears a bit, if you're able, we won't put you on the spot <laughs> too much, but I wonder if you're able to describe to people like listening at, um, at a relatively high level um, sort of the process around, because most people listening to this, they will not understand anything of how a shoe is designed from vision to end shoe is are you able to like in a few minutes kind of break down the high level of how you go from we need a shoe to there's a shoe on a shelf that people can buy
3: like yeah Um, so as you can when I first started in the industry uh, I did my research thesis work on how heel drop uh, affects neuromuscular function and kinematics and biomechanics and so forth Um, so basically how the body moves when you go from zero drop to like a normal 10 millimeter drop, but like back in 2009 when Derifley came out, it was pretty popular. Uh, and I thought I knew everything about shoes when I first came into the team. I was like, oh yeah, this I got this. <laughs> I knew nothing. Between developers, designers, uh, the amount of engineering that goes into a product, and the manufacturing aspect of things, um, it's, it's unbelievable how many people have their hands in a single product. Wow. So when, if you think of research influencing the product, um, you have the ability right now to maybe influence it at a macro level. So kind of like the shape and geometry at best and how like, the energy loss or gain that you may gain from a product on a macro level. But in terms of influencing small features, maybe how where you place the foam and how much of it and so forth, a lot of it is really limited by development currently. So when you go to a, wherever the footwear factory is, whether it's in some place in China, Uh, you have to cut these big steel molds. They could be made of steel or aluminum and so forth. It's just basically like a 3D shape where they either pour or inject the foam into it and the rubber in order to put the shoe together. And at the end of the day, it's the developers that really have to bear the brunt of all the limitations when it comes to making a shoe. That's why when you see the first iteration of product from any company, sometimes it could be rough around the edges or it could be something as simple as, I guarantee you when Nike was first working with their Peabax foam, their first foam iteration was probably so amazing, they're like, great, let's make a couple more of these and test them. The consistency of that material was probably subpar because they it just takes a, a lot of work in order to get that quality down in, in continuous development and so forth. Um, hopefully that kind of answers the question, but it's a lot more complicated than you expect. There's Designers really drive the process, so the person who really draws the thing, they take into... It's their role to take into account uh, what sort of shape and uh, how you you allocate the sizing and spacing of the individual logs, the foam, and so forth. They just draw it based on input from myself as a researcher, uh, input from mechanical testing that gets done on footwear product and the materials as a whole. And then it's the developer's job to take that picture and put it into life, which is another set of complications that you run into Asia. So if you're, there's a reason why every shoe basically looks the same. From a, across every brand is because the process of make is just so set and standardized that anytime you pivot even slightly from that, you have to change a big piece of machinery over in Asia, and they necessarily not to say they won't do that, sure. but they won't do that unless you have like a ton of order volume Pre-order, that you yeah. have to yeah if you're gonna make 500,000 500, pairs of shoes they'll be totally game but if your goal is to make like 10 or 12 prototypes or something like that they're not going to be that keen on uh, on making something totally innovative so yeah. yeah it's a whole process that I've had to learn
0: it sounds like to me it sounds like each individual person in the process can't just know their own area like they have to know a fair amount about some other other people's jobs as well otherwise you're just going to come up with some ridiculous <laughs> request that <they> <laughs> The next person can't honor,
3: I yeah. And that's in, in itself, like, so our innovation team within VF is very small. So the footwear team as a whole is between about 15 to 20 people, depending on who's there kind of part-time and travel a lot. Um, but it, we are multidisciplinary. We have everything from researchers, such as myself, to materials, mechanical engineers, um, developers, designers, and so forth. Um, and we don't really have a bench. There's pretty much like one expert in every subset that you kind of need to make a shoe. And that's kind of where our biggest advantage from is. We work so closely together that we can just iterate very, very quickly. As opposed to, if you walk into a brand office, most of the time there's like a separate section for developers, designers, and so forth, and everyone kind of operates within their own little bubble, um, and it becomes really difficult to iterate quickly. Um, So we try to strive to make that process a little bit a little bit faster. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the time, if we think about people like
0: Jacob, like out in the field. Um, North Face athletes and outdoor uh, athletes, by the time that they get the first shoe, kind of going out to the field, how far finished is that shoe? Like, is that shoe pretty much a production, or is it like, um,
3: can you still ch- tweak it a little bit based on that field feedback? So there's there's two ways of looking at it. They can easily have access to one of the first early prototypes. That but there's a cost. There's a pro and a con to it so for one you as the developer of the prototype if we make it we we want to make sure that professional athletes are not the first people we tested on just so they don't get hurt mm-hmm. um, like sometimes if, if you're pushing the boundary too far in terms of being a lightweight the cost is usually durability you know it's a pretty standard one so we want to make sure that it doesn't rip off of their feet or something like that and they go falling up the side of a mountain so Chances are they won't see the first prototype, but they'll see something that's a little bit more functional and vetted, AKA, I'm a sample size, so I'm fortunate enough to be the internal guinea pig for our office, so I pretty much run in any sort of magical juju thing that we cook up. Um, and so I'll usually be the first guinea pig before we do some work with our local athletes, um, where we'll test them on a treadmill a little bit more carefully, and then it's okay a go outside and see if this shoe survives like a technical trail, rocky, wet, you name it, whatever the design concept is for. And then the hope is for the athlete to see it, but if you push that time process too far, then like say, if we give you, uh, the, Jacob, you as the athlete, uh, a pro- prototype, and you have a totally negative opinion about it for X, Y, and Z reason, uh, we need to make sure that we have time within our frame to make those edits before the project is deemed to be you know, completed or presented to the brand or X, Y, and Z, so we usually work on a timeline for the most part, and uh, that's kind of where we weigh those decisions.
2: I'm a bit different. Uh, There are athletes, um, both ambassadors and and professional athletes that run for Ultra, at least, that do get some of the prototypes. Um, And Ultra conveniently actually does two or three prototype sizes. but I'm still a 14 or 15, and that's not a typical uh, <laughs> shoe size that they create um, for prototypes. So so often people ask me about whatever the latest and greatest thing is, and I'm like, I'm still on last year's models. I don't know. Like, I, I just got the new model. That which helps, new, new, helps connect you back to the... To the, the commoners. Yes. <laughs> no, uh, I don't view myself as elite anyway. But uh, no, it is funny, though, because people assume that like because I... Yeah, I'm connected to the brand uh, on a lot of different levels that I would have access to the prototypes. And it's (laughs) like, nope. (laughs) (laughs) My hope is that there's just a surplus in my size if I like a model so that I can like stock up. You you saw my garage. I've got boxes of all sorts of different models uh, because occasionally I do, the the inventory runs out and, and then there is a shoe that you need and want
3: and you can't
2: get your hands on it, so.
3: I can tell you that scaling something from a sample size, whether it be 10 and a half or nine, is like uh, the most indirect science that I've ever seen. Like I don't even understand how it happens and I work in the industry. Because you can't scale up all parts of the shoe, right? Well, think about like if you have like a 10 millimeter drop, right? right. In a size nine, since there's a, the distance from the heel to the toe is X, and, but if you apply a 10 millimeter drop in a size 14, that distance is much longer. So yes, the heel drop in, in stack height is, is the same, but the ramp that you're actually sitting on is completely different. So, like, how people scale um, footwear sizing is just, there's a, we have some very key people that that we have within our team and within Timberland that we work very closely to do that, but I always, I don't even know how the process works. It's it's like this magical science that just happens. Uh, It's unbelievable. Because I can imagine,
0: like, you could scale out a few sizes until some critical point where... That doesn't work anymore.
3: <laughs> it's like it's like a linear uh, uh, equation to for a couple of sizes and then it turns like this into this curve that and I don't know why the shape exists for whatever, for whatever reason but it exists and there's it's old shoe they call them like uh, old shoe dogs. They basically oh, like, yeah. were used to making like shoes and like you know stitching machines and so forth, so away from the 3D printing and all that stuff. Yeah, that reminds me. Have you ever heard of a brand called uh, La Sportiva? Of
0: course. So um, I used to, back in a past life, I used to be sponsored by La Sportiva. So I used to get pulled to the um, factory, which is in northern Italy. It's in the Dolomites, uh, not far from um, uh, 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 Trentino. And um, so I used to go there once a year. And that place used to blow my mind because it was like over 100 years old. Everything was done in in this factory at the very end of this valley. It was a total pain to get to. You had to drive and drive and drive to get there. And at the end of this valley, there's this factory. And you're like, why is there a factory here? It's ridiculous. But it's very Italian. You know, three hours off at lunchtime, all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, the front is all the offices. And then I used to go around the back because I was lucky enough to be able to pick my own shoes and design the color schemes of my own shoes. And uh, it was a huge factory, a huge open plan. All the stock was held underground um, in underground storage but on top was this huge factory and you went to the very far end where all the material was laid out on tables and you picked what you wanted, what colors and everything like this and all the people who worked in this company for generations and they just went in a production line like this. So the first guy cut out the fabric, he passed it to the next table. The next table they started stitching. Eventually at the end was a gluing guy. He must've been high like most of his life, just like (laughs) gluing stuff, right? And it was the most manual process I'd ever seen in my life. And two hours later at the end of this Yep. Factory floor was a finished shoe in a box, and it was like, oh my goodness! But they were very proud. You know, they they had they had some production in China in uh, in the Far East, but most was done in Italy still. And uh, it, it totally blew my mind to see this process. It was
3: incredible. I can tell you that that I mean, in Italy there they have a, a very rich tradition of like old school shoe making but it's I shouldn't even say it's old school because. Most footwear is still at least ninety percent of the way is still done in the same way. Incredibly manual labor over over in Asia mm-hmm. development. Like you see things mm-hmm. in the news, like the um, uh, the future craft, I think is what it's called, the factory for Adidas and so forth. How yeah, uh, they yeah, have yeah, robotic yeah. arms making shoes and everything like that. Yeah. I mean, that's far and few in between that exists. But most of the development is still manual labor on a line in, in Asia. Yeah. So it, it's a it's a tough process. It's it's kind of
0: unbelievable. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. 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 So how are things the same and how are they different from, say, an old-school cobbler or a traditional cobbler or, or even like the Bill Bowermans, the, the tinkerer that you know was, was making stuff in, in the garage or the basement or whatever and what you're doing now um, with
3: 3D printing and, and some of the other technologies. How, what has changed and, and sure. what's still the same? So uh, a lot of this I can't speak to too much in detail. Our developers do all that stuff. Uh, we have a, a brilliant engineer, his name is Tad Smith. Um, who kind of merges the two together? I could say old school shoemaking with uh, the r- like recent advancement te- technology, using CNC and three D printing and all of those sort of things. What's and, CNC? I'm um, sorry. uh what's the what's the acronym stand for? Um, CNC. Sorry, I figured it's if some, I didn't uh, know so that's what it was, you milling, right? Yeah, it's like I just don't remember what the acronym stands for. But yeah, it's, just a, it's like a drill bit that mills out a material of. Um, uh, of, of sorts, like whether it's wood, steel, you name it. Um, so, inevitably, what happens is like shoes are really predicated, the shape of them are built on lasts. It's like this generic shoe shape um, that exists. So, it's basically if you think of your foot, it's like in this solid form, and they take and they put the bottom unit on it, and they put the upper unit on it, and they combine them together, whether glues or stitching or so forth. Um, so, the goal is now to be able to kind of move past that and being able to do it in a custom way. So think Of instead of making a last that's permanent, um, that's a one size meets all, um, you could uh, scan your foot, we can get that 3D shape, we can quickly 3D print it, and then we can make your custom fitting shoe at least from a static position. So obviously it's not moving or anything like that because um, your size of your foot changes in that regard. Um, but uh, but s- things like that. So he combines the old school shoe making, like old, old stitching machines, with the new methods of make and tries to make it. Uh, as functional as possible as opposed to going straight from A to Z he's really creating the and bridging the gap between the two industries so you can continue to make shoes that are functional so if you think of some of the 3D printed shoes that you've seen from Adidas like in Futurecraft or New Balance recently came out uh, with, a, with a similar concept they have like a lattice structure so there's like open cavities within the I guess the midsole or the foam unit that you would consider so inevitably if you step on a poop or something like that, or or if you run on a trail, those things really won't survive. Uh, But for casual, everyday lifestyle use, they're applicable. Um, They could work, it's just you'll be rocking over what is more of a firm type of a material as opposed to a foam that people are used to and that's pretty synonymous with comfort. Um, It's a simple fact that for things like 3D printing, uh, it's the material limitation that exists in being able to make Uh, a shoe in that sort of material, like EVA or p As opposed to you can 3D print in in an array of other materials, whether from carbon fiber to TPU to whatever, and you can make a nice rigid structure, um, but not really, like, we can't really create a 3D printed shoe, and I don't think anybody can at this point for trail running, because there's too um, uh, too much work that's imposed upon the shoe, from traction to keeping your foot on the shoe and stability. Um, in order to actually survive the process, so it's still old school shoemaking there, but uh, we're slowly making that leap and trying to make it uh, not by investing like millions of dollars into this fancy machine that's going to be outdated. Because the problem is, uh, it's not a problem. It's a good thing is that technology is advancing so fast that if you buy something that's a like state of the art today and it costs a million bucks, next year it'll be outdated and there's and there's a newer, cheaper, better model. Um, so it's kind of hard to make that upfront investment because it will be outdated very very. Quickly that's kind of what we're trying to tackle he basically built his own 3d printer and uh, takes a old CNC machine and rigged it to do a bunch of various things in terms of like custom footbeds and everything in between it's kind of unbelievable <laughs> hopefully you'll get a <laughs> chance to visit soon, both of you and, and kind of see the process so uh, cool. I mean
0: on that theme of um, yeah technology moving fast like um, hopefully I mean knowledge knowledge doesn't advance as fast as technology nowadays but um, Knowledge not kind of catches up <laughs> <laughs> sometime after. Um, you've been at the conference for the last three days, correct? Um, which was this uh, footwear specific conference. Yep. Um, for the people out there listening uh, to this um, sometime later, who obviously I haven't had a chance to go to the conference, was there anything in your like professional opinion? Did you hear anything in the last three days that? That really stood out for you like any talks that really made you think whoa that's something
3: different there (laughs) like so it's kind of it's one of the things that you know is happening back there but you don't really see it in the news at this point because it's it might have a good or bad connotation so big data is something that we've all heard over the past couple of years in terms of whether it's under armor or anybody else buying up companies that collect data from whatever app you may be using so matthew nurse who's the vp of the of the nike research innovation lab he had this great like short keynote presentation about how they tested 100 people. And it was like a uh, 100 local runners, just kind of the average Joe runners. They geared them up with a, a, an array of five different sensors from foot pods to heart rate monitors to uh, a, a pod that goes on your waist and so forth to just measure a whole ton of metrics, so RunScribe and beyond. And gave them all fancy GPS watches that are, most people can't afford. Um, And what they're able to do with all that information, they did a very simple study. They trained people for uh, a short period of time and they gave them two types of shoes. One, a newer kind of cushioning system that they're working on, new phone. And then the other one, a control shoe. I'm assuming it was something along the lines of like a Nike Free that they've had for a long time. And they're able to, I guess the best way to explain it, model a lot of different um, sort of uh, parameters in terms of how like, for instance, the one shoe they're working on, something called the Odyssey. It's a kind of a midsole uh, thing that's gonna come out very soon. If it's not out already, I believe, I, I think forget. It might be out, just okay. recently, yeah. Just recently, yeah, yeah, okay, in yeah, the end of July, right? Yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so they were able to just prove, based on a whole ton of metrics, um, how that reduces fatigue over the course of something like an hour run, on a consistent basis across their control shoe, just because the impact attenuation is better. But the beautiful part is, is it's not done in a lab, it's all remote, it's kind of the what RunScribe essentially offers but they're kind of doing it from head to toe and keeping all that data internally and they're creating algorithms and models for to predict your performance, what it could be based on X, Y, and Z metric, they could predict of what you would be able to run for a 5K, 10K marathon pace uh, because GPS watches now can collect weather information. so how hot or what the humidity is to how fast you're running and what your heart rate is and you can relate all those variables to uh to what your performance is going to be on a given race day um there's been like 40 plus years of research and you'll be surprised of how much back-end work is is driven behind your your garmin watch or something of the sort like first beat um yeah. is a company that drives a lot of the uh, yeah. physiological metrics yeah. That estimates like when you, if for any of you who have like a Garmin watch, if you ever clicked on through, uh, through the features and it estimates what your VO2 max is, there is uh, probably endless years of research that goes into how that value is estimated, and it simply uses heart rate and GPS over time. So they're taking that sort of concept and they're pushing it to a level, in a combined level that it has never been done before, and it's 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 absolutely brilliant. You can imagine that they probably have dozens of people working on something like that. And it's very forward and future thinking and it's so far beyond where research is that they're going to outpace research work in the longest time. And the key fact of all that is Matt Nurse made it a point to kind of what we had the conversation just recently is Mm. how each and every one of us basically has the right to be a researcher in our own right if we want to take the time to do it. Yeah. so wearable technology is allowing you to put a research-grade device on your body and you can test yourself over and over and over as as a scientist would in the laboratory but you no longer need a scientist as long as you're willing to do the due diligence yeah and that was like the highest keynote that I seen and I was just earlier today that's amazing yeah and that really
0: speaks to our whole philosophy around RunScribe when I say we it's me and Tim uh, mostly Tim but um, yeah yeah it's that was the whole idea around it I think Tim originally put this tagline on the website saying, you know, democratizing like data collection, whatever. And, um, yeah, kind of, uh, you're right, it is a research-grade device, certainly with RunScribe, we have a lot, a lot of well-known universities in North America use the device, um, between a hundred and a thousand uh, sets for really big studies. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't mention some of the people around that, that are doing it, but, um, uh, and they're really pulling all of the metrics that we can possibly supply uh same device though is going to consumers and coaches and everyone else um and uh i remember we I, we touched on it before we started but um in, in a previous podcast i did with ben o who is essentially one of the kind of fathers of modern biome- running biomechanics study um you know i uh, i was discussing how long it takes to do research study. let's say it takes four years five years and then maybe another three years to write it all up, to publish it, to get it uh, reviewed and everything else and get it into a journal. So you're looking at seven or eight years in the process. And the fact that now um, uh, people like us can collect, I don't know, maybe 500 data sets or whatever it is, pretty quick mm-hmm. and get insights very quick and then pretty much self-publish if we wanted to, <laughs> almost instantaneously, um, it's really changed. In, I think both of us agree it's really, really Entirely changed the landscape of where knowledge sits today, and and, and and the power of knowledge and where it sits today.
2: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Speaking of research, uh, you weren't just attending, but you were presenting. Um, do you want to tell you? You presented
3: some of your own research and, and that of a colleague. Is that correct, or you had a poster there of a colleague? So we co-authored them. Okay. Um, okay. So he did the statistics behind the work okay. and was supposed to come to the conference with me. Um, just he has a triathlon race. Like he's he's currently under a strict training regimen. So the fact that I presented on Sunday, he couldn't come out. If it was Monday or Tuesday, he would have been presenting the second half. But, um, but yeah, and uh, glad to talk about it. Uh, it's pretty. He sounds like a really good athlete and follows what his coach writes out for him. Doesn't <laughs> have a coach. He, he, <laughs> he's uh, he actually uses the um, uh, what's his name? Um, oh boy, how do I forget this? Because he uses it all the time. Uh, there's a training platform for cyclists all the time. Uh, uh, trainer Road. Okay. So he uses the training program from Trainer Road, yeah. and uh, yeah, he's very religious about it. It's kind of, it's kind of hard because we used to just kind of go and do fun runs for everything else, but now yeah. he's very strict about his regimen, <laughs> so it's like... Oh, um, he's one of those friends. I'm not going to yeah. do that anymore, Simon. <laughs> uh, but it has got a great cyclist, he figured that one out very quickly. Yeah. Um, but what we ended up doing is last fall, um, when comparing Chicago and New York City, we did a much bigger data collection in New York City So Tim. Um, yes. Tim approached me about... Hey, I'm thinking of doing this, uh, just you know, fun research study and over New York City Marathon. It'd be super cool. Nobody's ever done this sort of thing before, Um, and uh, and he's right. Very few people have done. Irene Davis is kind of one of the researchers over in Boston. She did a similar thing using ankle-based similar units to runscribe, but they're IMUs, Um, and they did it over the Boston Marathon, I think, in 2017. Uh, And so we tried to do the same thing for um, uh, for New York City. But the goal was really not to have like physical contact, which is not something that you usually have with a subject, you know, like. Um, usually, you meet with a subject, you ask them questionnaires, and so forth. In this case, we wanted to tangibly collect data and not actually have like real, you know, physical t- touch base with a person, just because that's the premise of the of the device. And so, inevitably, recruited fifty people, um, which is great. It did it very quickly, just through an open form. So everybody who got accepted to the New York City Marathon last year was able to see in the newsletter, "Hey, Runscribe is doing a research study. Would you like to participate? Send them over a pair of the pods." they put them on and they ran. And what we did is we presented um, kind of two papers. Um, Since there's two pods that sit on one on each shoe, we presented one that kind of dealt with the basic metrics that everybody's used to seeing. So pace, cadence, contact time, stride length, and so forth. Um, And the other one really meant to uh, kind of uh, about asymmetry. So if you think of the marathon, is kind of a pinnacle race where you get fatigue, that distance after 20 miles, you hit the wall or however you wanna think about it, fatigue hits everybody in some way, shape or form. Asymmetry really kind of uh, is is a thing that's only been studied on if you're injured, like in a clinical environment. Very that's when everybody's yeah. going to come in, and <laughs> so the goal yeah. is to get you back to like fifty fifty, you yeah. know, as opposed to in you. In a perfect world, yeah, in a perfect <laughs> world, <laughs> exactly. But what we see is that everybody inherently has some base level of asymmetry. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're injured. Um, that's what Rune's has been able to tease out. So we wanted to see how that asymmetry uh, trends. Does it get? Uh, much more exacerbated as you go longer in a race or does it or does it get more symmetrical over a course of time and we have no idea it was more of an exploratory work um, as we mentioned one of the yeah. coolest findings that I think we found was uh, run scribe has this proprietary algorithm to develop of your foot strike pattern so whether you're landing in the heel of the forefoot or midfoot or whatever it kind of gives you number one through 16 yeah,
1: yeah
3: so what we ended up seeing is that subjects had about a 40 percent difference in asymmetry in the beginning of the race up to about maybe just past the halfway point and then afterwards it slowly started becoming more symmetrical so as people began to slow down at the end of the marathon which is logical uh it happens most of the time they became a lot more symmetrical and it kind of indirectly people can have their own opinion about why this is because the first thing you
0: think is that doesn't sound intuitive <laughs> yeah exactly
3: I would, i would naturally i thought that it would get worse yeah. As you become fatigued, you become sloppy, and maybe uh, any sort of asymmetry that you inherently had would be that much more prominent towards the later stages of race. But it, it, my theory in this, and this is just subjectively, I don't have any in data or anything to prove this, is that early in the race, a lot of people in the race scenario tend to go out a little too fast. Just because excitement of the race kind of, like, overwhelms you a little Especially bit. Especially New just, York City with the, the crowds, both, yeah. both the mass start and the people lining the streets. And, you know, yeah. It's New York City. Yeah. And, and those races are incredible. If you've never participated, they're, like, it's a different thing than just going and running a random marathon or a treadmill marathon. Um, so what we ended up seeing is that high level of asymmetry in the beginning, and people started slowing down, it became much more symmetrical. And to me, that just screams, like, fatigue is a protective mechanism that the body does, whether you are running out of like uh glycogen or you're so hypoglycemic uh or uh, some sort of like neuromuscular deficit where your body is now trying to like hey i don't want you to run this fast more because you're going to get hurt so it physically slows you down mm. so inevitably you're going to hit your natural point Kind of central governor thing yeah yeah, yeah. And, and it just brought the people back to a much more symmetrical point yeah. to arguably what they should have maybe started running the race right. at in the beginning and uh, it was just amazing to see it really, really jives with like,
0: and this is why we we can talk for so long on this because it really jives with uh, the 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 years of data that I've collected as well. Um, I remember giving a presentation for another company in the past called Dorsavi V, who had ground reaction force um, IMUs in the, that time, and um, uh, what I described is like three patterns of response. So normally in the clinic, when I uh, put someone through a gait analysis, biomechanical analysis we we'll do all the other stuff like strength testing, range of motion testing, all that stuff. When we get to the running at the end, they'll run at three different speeds on the treadmill first mm-hmm. um, because I want to see how the metrics change for each different speed. Um, and then afterwards they'll run outside as well with the same stuff on. But in the three different speeds, I found like, yeah, basically three ways people can go. So they can either like start off really asymmetric in the key, me- in the key variables. And then as they go faster, they get more and more symmetric. Okay. Or they can go the other way. And get less and less, or a few people, about five or five to ten percent of people, are just rock solid, don't shift mm-hmm. at any speed. And um, it took me about three thousand, uh, <laughs> three thousand uh, analyses on three thousand runners over a period of years to sort of f- see the real numbers coming out of it. And it really was. A, there was. A, I remember one woman actually. I can I, I still remember it today. Like measuring her, and I, I don't. No matter what speed we went at, she was. asymmetry I could not shift this one and she was not a hardcore runner Mm. she was off the couch I was like this is unreal this blows my mind like my models just gone out the window and the way I described it in the in the in the online webinar um, was basically yeah again we were just expressing our own opinions but so you had the kind of neuromuscular switch on people so they um, they early on they were not switched on so the body could be half asleep but get through the, the movement pattern of running Uh, quite asymmetric but then as you went faster they had to wake up Mm -hmm. the brain had to start uh, conducting the orchestra properly and then at the fastest speed they became more symmetric and then the others were like kind of neuromuscular breakdown people so as they went faster the brain got overloaded it couldn't process the signals fast enough and everything and they just became more asymmetric and then these random people as I say about 5 or so percent (laughs) you just couldn't shift them they were just like stuck no matter what you did with the speed and um, so I I think like from my experience to your experience it sounds like you got a whole bunch of these uh, neuromuscular switch on uh, or I should say neuromuscular breakdown guys where yeah. when they ran too fast yeah. they were breaking down and then like you say like when they found their I think the best way to describe it is that everyone has sort of a, um, a biomechanical like a pace a biomechanical pace mm-hmm. where there's some sort of pace where they're well trained that they their metrics look best and um, and then maybe, like you say, they settled into that pace and that rhythm later on in the race. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's yeah.
2: We we've discussed that as well um,
0: at, a couple of years ago or a year ago at a, at a
2: retreat. Uh, you had some pods on me, and um, you asked me to run kind oh, of yeah, uncomfortably slow, <laughs> <laughs> and and so I was very asymmetrical. And then you know the goal was to get asymmetrical again by getting to this point of like a breaking point of fatigue um but we were intentionally not looking at the pace on the treadmill it was just kind of like okay run run too slow and then run at kind of like sub threshold and then you know maybe VO 2 max kind of thing and a couple things that we found out was that um when i was running at like just at the sub threshold one i was running faster than i would have calculated i That would have been my pace at the sub-threshold but two that's when things got more symmetric symmetric. um and then it did get sloppy kind of as i as i went beyond that um but it's actually something that i experienced um and and i think we can draw a lot of conclusions from this or at least we can talk all day about this but um (laughs) when i when i ran on the treadmill uh when i did the 50 mile uh record attempt or whatever uh i i honestly felt like the goal was to go and run like right at pace which was right around seven minutes a mile and so I was like okay I've done that for 50 miles on the trail or more or less I've run like seven of nine so I was like eh, okay I'm not wearing a backpack I'm also not going up and down mountains so I could probably do that on a treadmill but seven minute pace in my mind was okay that's kind of like my my easy run pace I can, I can handle that within like 30 minutes that was way too slow and my knees were banging up against the front of the the treadmill and again my plan was like go 45 miles and then maybe pick it up toward the end and just dip right under the record and what actually ended up being the sweet spot was more like six minutes a mile and toward the end rather than it getting um slower like I couldn't stay on the treadmill unless I unless I sped up like I was I was gonna fall (laughs) off the treadmill unless I was like doing fartlek intervals because I was just like one, finish this damn thing, and two, like six minute pace or faster was actually more efficient. And that's when I, it, anytime I'd slow down to like catch my breath, it, it it got choppy and sloppy again. So I think a lot of us actually have some, a, a, some, of, some, yeah. some, some pace, internal pace that's most efficient. Yeah. And yeah. I, at least for me, I, I've noticed this even when I've been tested in a lab with all the metabolic testing and stuff like that. Like, when I cross that red line, like mm-hmm. it's game over for me. And so, but if I can if I can be right up against that, I can go all day. Yep. And, and so I think we can all find what that threshold is for each of us, and that's where training and using all of these technologies is really beneficial. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's also why I try and discourage people from becoming slaves to the technology, because they go in and it's like, no, I have to run this exact pace, and they don't. Yeah, but they're only yeah, looking yeah, at that one metric, and they're not looking at the overlays. They're not saying, okay, but I'm actually running downhill. So it's okay if I go a few seconds faster on this mile or this kilometer. Or, you know or it yeah. is a little bit hotter or a little bit colder or there's some wind and but I'm gonna make up for it when we turn around and uh, I don't know there's there's a there's so many different metrics that yeah. that sometimes if we just fixate on, on one yeah. it, it's actually to our
0: detriment so yeah I think there's something there definitely it's probably out of the scope of our like areas, yeah. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure like someone like professor Sam or someone has probably figured out the answer already and I'm pretty sure it's got something to do with because we know that we talk about biomechanics a lot, but it's, it's a bunch of systems operating. And the, the biggest one by far is what happens here between the ears and the kind of uh, neuropsychology of things like that. And um, uh, I'm pretty sure it's got something to do with the brain going quiet and, it, and to do with resonance and frequencies and stuff in the brain. And When you find your right rhythm and you find your right pace, the brain goes a little bit quiet, which allows you to have better rhythm in the muscle time and everything else because you're not trying to fight it. And what kind of convinced me of that was watching Kipchoge almost break two hours and did run the 225 and a lot of people kind of commented on the fly live like uh, like he looks like he's smiling right? like this guy, is, this guy is just running <laughs> ridiculous and he's almost done the two hours and why is he smiling and um, and I think that that was what was happening to some extent and it's just my kind of opinion on it is that he was in such a groove and such a flow state of like correct brain frequency and resonance in the brain and everything else that everything just goes quiet basically in total flow state and and his muscle timing, muscle firing is just so perfectly synchronized at that point, like, but, um, and then I saw him obviously in February. And I thought the same thing again. <laughs> like, <laughs> the guy's still smiling after a track repeat of like 1200 meters intervals. I'm like, <laughs> you
3: know, he's, fa- he's accessed another level in his head. And <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, there's a, it's, it's kind of interesting. You guys might've heard of a, there's a recent, uh, professional runner from UNH, El Perrier. U N H meaning University of New Hampshire. Uh, okay. So she's a she's a when I was there in graduate school, she was one of the runners. Now and she runs for New Balance, and so Coach Rob Hoppler, who coaches the women's team over at U N H, he continuously uses this term that I kind of fell in love with. It's like neuromuscularly loaded kind of athlete. So if you think of like a basic like functional movement screen, like those series of exercises that most runners usually are horrible at because we have poor hip mobility because we sit all the time or everything is too tight or yeah everything in between. This girl, can just she just goes out and just cranks any sort of physical task out without any sort of issues. And she's a phenomenal runner. She's qualified for the World Championships in Doha. She finished fifth, uh, third in the the 5K uh, in outdoor track just I think this past, a couple days ago, yeah. Yeah. Um, And just incredible athlete. When you watch her run fast, it's like the most amazing thing you've ever seen. But it's, you know, she doesn't do anything special. Everything is pretty standard. She came in running like 20 miles a week from high school. And slowly build her up I think at the end of her collegiate career she was running around like 50 ish plus or minus a few miles here and there a lot of pool cross training like aqua jogging and stuff and just yeah nothing it just consistent no injury type of process that she was bred with under coach hop at UNH and it was it's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen but that's when you kind of see that diverging thing of uh, a talented athlete from like, being neuromuscularly loaded that understands that they're talented and also working hard and working progressively and smart. But the kicker is they don't use any sort of technology. You hmm. know, at some point, there's a, a guy out there by his the name of uh, Ray Maker. He yes, runs the DC Ray Maker course. website. It's like, basically the homepage yeah. of my the colleague fa- that was able the to The most
0: famous tech reviewer in
3: yes. the West. <laughs> uh, he, he kind of whittles all the things down for us that we don't want to make the mistake of purchasing. Um, but he, he put it very clearly in, the, in the, um, I think in the Garmin, uh, their Garmin Summit Conference, I forget exactly what it's called. The Ants, uh,
0: Ants Symposium?
3: Uh, yeah, yeah, I think yes, so. Yeah. Um, Garmin hosts yeah. one at, at their headquarters uh, every year and he, oh, yeah. he presents there. Oh, okay. um, and he mentioned like a thing of how they track your sleep metrics and so forth. Mm-hmm. And But it didn't realize that he shifted so many time zones. But the coach, the old school coach that just looks at his heart rate zones that everyone pretty much does if you were remotely coaching, he just saw that he did a run and his heart rate zone was just awful because he he was supposed to be running in zone one easy recovery run ended up being zone two zone three the entire time his watch with all the technology and everything just never picked up on it but at the end of the day his coach who's an old school i believe he mentioned maybe like a navy seal or something of the sort mm-hmm. just quickly looked at this and said like, what were you doing why are you running so fast but it's because he shifted an entire like overnight so he slept for like an hour or two and then went for a run of course system needed to catch up a little bit, but it kind of speaks to at this point, this sort of technology does require uh, uh, an end user who can understand what's actually happening. So yeah. as opposed to there's still a little bit of a breach to the consumer, and consumer, and that's why Runscribe right. is really adopted by the very technological end user. Yeah, uh, you yeah. can see it all over the forums and the people that are actually very yeah. interested in it, but um, yeah. from a simplicity standpoint, I, I think the next step is that it might have to hit uh, an understanding at the coach level, mm-hmm. and how they can utilize that across their activities, which you guys currently are basically working on together yeah. at this point. And and so. I think a lot
0: of people probably cite things like Adidas is uh, my coach, and, and the um, Nike uh, mm-hmm. pod that was inside the shoe as well. Nike Plus probably ahead of its time. Um, yeah, way, yeah, yeah. That <laughs> the market wasn't quite ready to x- accept <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> what Arguably to do with still it. isn't. <laughs> <but> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Ultra had an IQ as well, and. I don't even think I ever actually connected my like I got the shoes that were a hundred and fifty dollars extra than like the actual the the original model and yep. I don't even think I connected it because it was like what am I supposed to do? best to see that
3: data? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just wanna get out the door and <laughs> yeah. on the trail of the road as quick as possible, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It boggles my mind when a lot of brands went to like the auditory coaching method. I'm like I I'm not sure if I would want somebody screaming in my ear about like what how I'm supposed to be running because there's just so many bigger things besides me like shifting my hips both or leaning back every so slightly or changing what my natural cadence is to whatever this app is telling me to do. So it's interesting. But, and it, I think sometimes that may, unless it's really
2: intuitive, and, and as we know at this point, it's all just algorithms that have plenty of limitations, it actually wouldn't allow you to do what you need to do to, to warm up to the to load yourself neuromuscularly before you actually get into that sweet spot of the Correct. run kind of thing. Um, you mentioned UNH, uh, the mm-hmm. University of New Hampshire. Um, and maybe in closing, could you let us know a little bit about how you got to where you're at? Like sure. some of your some of your experience as a runner and, and, and your background um,
3: in sure. studies and things like that. Sure thing. Um, I'll start a little further back on, um, I won't go into the whole sob story. Um, I'm originally from Belarus. Uh, Eastern European nation and my mother and father were both athletes so mom comes from a really good Nordic skiing background and She's ran like over 50 marathons in her life. So she I was raised upon that like what is I guess hashtag van life pretty cool now um, She basically raised myself and my sister like you know driving all over Europe racing marathons to kind of eat that uh, meat ends meat and um, And that really what kind of well, I remember that being normal um, so like running was a normal thing for my sister and myself. She gravitated towards the Nordic skiing genetics in the family and I took after my father with the running. Um, so when I came, when we came over to the United States, like uh, soccer was the only thing I wanted to do. But it wasn't cool, Just um, football, like American football was the thing and I, everyone looked at me funny when I went to Brooklyn and started playing soccer. Um, so immediately got into running. So if you were in Central Park or um, uh, like indoors in New York World Running Club races, it's pretty huge you could go there every weekend so she dragged me from the age of 10 to 14 until I like hit high school every weekend everything from half marathon to 5k so I of course dreaded it every time like any normal teenager would but loved it when I was there so when I finally went to we moved up to suburbia a little bit more uh, and I ran for a great high school Warwick Valley and then Shenandoah because she had to switch jobs a little bit so two high schools I became uh, really interested in running. I found that I was really good at it, and I, I just enjoyed uh, beating other people. Uh, pretty competitive from that regard, uh, it was awesome. And so, of course, I wanted to be like a professional runner, like anybody else would, coming out of high school, going into uh, undergraduate years. My mom, my mother's a nurse; she has been her entire life. Um, she's always ever told me one thing: it's like uh, you need to be a doctor to make a lot of money. Um, <laughs> and so, because hey, you know, we came here; she came here on a sports skiing or skiing visa. Um, and we came here for the classic reasons that most, most foreigners do, for like the American dream, because there's a lot more opportunity here than there is everywhere else. And I will unequivocally admit that, no matter how bad things ever may seem here, from whatever you look at politics or anything else, it's much worse in other places. Um, so after that, I, I, I immediately just went to the pre-med major because I didn't know what I wanted to do. First, it was a doctor Sure, Volunteered at the hospital for a little while, hated it. Um, that wasn't fun. And then I started working, what really started my, I guess you could say career is I met a great name but the name of Charlie Woodruff. Like everyone has individuals that kind of have a huge influence in their life. And he managed at Fleet Feet Sports, uh, a branch of running specialty stores over where we were from. They're pretty big in the United States. And while doing all the anatomy and physiology and all that sort of work in undergraduate school and fitting people for shoes and being there at the time that Born to Run came out and all the barefoot running stuff, It was this really big shift from crazy stability issues to minimalism and I was starting to put together why people were injured to their muscle function to uh, how we should move and so forth. And um, due to that, instead of going to PT or chiropractic or anything like that, I saw that University of New Hampshire where my sister went to school uh, for her undergraduate and now her PhD, um, uh, they were doing a bunch of uh, barefoot running work. So basically doing like a training protocol to adapt people in a very, over 10 weeks, very progressively as opposed to going like from A to Z so they wouldn't get hurt and seeing what effect that would have on the economy. So I immediately just gravitated towards that and um, from being injured in college myself while working in the store, I I was just immediately interested in like, I realized that the more I went towards minimal footwear or like that neutral as opposed to stability type of footwear with the medial postings and things, I became a lot more healthy. I, didn't, I had less, less and less injuries and I was really curious why. So I started to see how far I can push it and never went to the whole barefoot level but I found my sweet spot to be like a four millimeter drop, like uh, like some cushioning on foot type of thing or ultras, they were phenomenal. Um, and those were just starting to come out at that time. Like the Pure Flow from Brooks, ultra came out with the one that initially came out back in like 2009. I remember wearing all of those. And so when I went to graduate school, um, I, and getting all of those injuries from running in college. I became a, a lab research assistant where I basically lived doing uh, force plate testing, metabolic testing, and everything in between on people who were doing a barefoot study. Uh, and also doing my own work on, I had a theory of that instead of uh, going from a 10 millimeter drop immediately to a zero, people can progress from a 10 to an eight to a six millimeter drop uh, through the life of the, of the shoe. Um, and doing it, do it healthy and get down to a point of where they want and where they're most economical by just simply adjusting the heel drop and maintaining like a, some semblance of stack height in the shoe or the cushioning, however you want to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that luckily, uh, as you guys may or may not know, the Nike Sports Research Lab was based in Exeter, New Hampshire. So it's very close to where we are in Dover, New Hampshire, where our like, facility is currently based in. And so there's still a pretty rich culture of some of the researchers that I left there. Ned Frederick being one of them, he's one of the founding fathers as well of the Fort Worth Biomechanics space. Um, he, I got connected by my thesis work, the guy that founded my laboratory it was essentially the professor, one of the head biomechanists of Fort Worth Biomechanics. Putting those two connections uh, together, I, I started working as, um, luckily at first technically it was like a Timberland hire. Timberland headquarters is in Stratham, New Hampshire, so it's about 20 minutes from University of New Hampshire. They had an advanced concepts group. And uh, a few years before VF bought Timberland, they took that advanced concepts group and branched it across all of their footwear brands. So they started; they wanted that team to support all of the footwear brands within VF, and I was part of that team, which is now called the Global Innovation Team, or just the footwear innovation team. Uh, so I worked there from being an intern and doing all the material-based, benchtop testing, so more of sort of like button pusher monkey work. Uh, wasn't that fun, but I, you learn the whole process of what it takes to build a shoe. Um, and then went into this field of, uh, inevitably it pushed me to doing field-based research similar uh, as you know, um, just more towards a product standpoint. That was kind of forced upon me, because sure. um, as much as I would love to work with and care about the human being, like. Uh, my job isn't to coach you. I have to make you a better shoe, so that's kind of my role. And, um, and due to trail running, like I immediately, from my graduate school experience, I, I know the benefit of the standard laboratory equipment, but um, there is certainly a lot of limitations. Yeah. And I think combining wearable tech, field based testing to standard laboratory testing, it kind of com- it gives you the benefits of both high fidelity versus uh, lots of big data that uh, you can really sink your teeth into over time. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, I think one day when when somebody invents like a follow-me drone, that can shoot a thousand frames per second <laughs> <laughs> and can basically video you outside. To, like, yep. Then we don't need the lab anymore. But, Markerless capture yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah, drone. Exactly, but until then we need, we always have to come back to something controlled indoors,
3: of course, yeah. yeah sure. I mean, that's a funny, so like my previous lab manager, his name's Ben Cooper, um, he's the general manager for Flex Innovation now. Um, brilliant man, just such a, uh, his biggest ability was to storytell uh, science. It's one of the hardest I think for like geeks like myself to do um, is to uh, you know in layman's terms explain these sort of things but we would run around when we worked with skaters both with cameras, one running from the side view to get that sagittal plane from a technical perspective and somebody running behind or in front of the skater uh, to get the front view to do like video uh, biomechanics and like but keep it lab-based so as much as we can and we're like sprinting around with GoPros and, like, and gimbals and stuff, it was hysterical. Um, but yeah, it was,
2: it's an interesting world. So you're, new, you're still training and racing
3: and what, what type of racing are you doing or what are you training for at this point? So uh, as much as I love trail running and I love working for it um, and researching the space, I am I'm awful at going up and down hills, my legs just don't function well, so I am more of a flat ground marathoner. Right now, my my training is mainly running with a, a, a pushing a stroller and with my eight-month-old son and being pulled by my uh, one of three dogs at a given point in time. Uh, so for those of you out there who are not familiar, uh, there's a series of racing called Canicross. It's basically where, it's pretty big in Alaska or uh, kind of around here. Um, northwest or northeast coast so you basically get pulled along by a dog running a 5k or however long of a race that it is and that's kind of what I do now um, I have no shame in it but it's it's a lot of fun because my husky loves it and, and I do too and it kind of gets me out the door because honestly like there's a billion and one excuses to not run when you have kids and responsibilities in a home and they, they'll look at you and like hey I'm going to chew your pillow if, uh, <laughs> if you don't take me for a run so i take him for a run
2: <laughs> Yeah, I think it's it's a miracle that the three of us got together we have we, we have we have three young sons um so the fact that three dads got together and somehow <laughs> aren't with their kids because often if when malk and i are able to meet up um we have at least two kids with us or i had to up three to phone
3: calls during the course of the podcast <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> my wife so <there>. yeah <laughs> So, yeah, so we're good. This is great that we were able to meet. Yeah, Yeah,
2: thanks for for sharing your story. Yeah, Yeah. yeah.
0: it was fun. Sure, fantastic.
2: Um, Once again, uh, we uh, we are now on on iTunes and we're on Stitcher and Spotify and Google Podcasts and and basically anywhere you can you can download or listen. So so please subscribe, please rate and review, please share, and then. uh, whether it be on social media or on our website um let us know what other questions you have and and what else you want to to learn and who you want us to talk to so thank
1: you A